tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with James Evans. James is a multi-award-winning creative strategist and leader with 25-plus years of experience developing relationships between organizations and their constituents. His expertise has been utilized across a diverse group of brands, both not-for-profit and for-profit. Over 15 years of his work within the animal welfare field is well-known, including the groundbreaking Humane Society's Pets for Life, which helped reshape animal welfare, while simultaneously advocating for more diversity and inclusion throughout the field. James has also played an integral part in other animal welfare projects, including HSUS's Adopters Welcome, Outdoor Cats, Stop Puppy Mills, and Spayathon, as well as Best Friends Animal Society, Maddie's Fund, Let's Fix This, and PetSmart Charities. CARE, in March of 2020, prior to COVID-19 and the unrest surrounding the murder of George Floyd, Ahmad Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, James launched Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity, CARE, to address the need for more inclusion and equity within the animal welfare industry. That said, CARE became a beacon for many working within the animal welfare field as the nation faced an undeniable need for systematic change within all facets of American life. CARE's mission is to address organizational and personal biases within animal welfare, to bring diverse voices to animal welfare while also advocating for a more inclusive path to pet adoption, to use evidence-based tools, narratives, and insights to inspire organizations to be more inclusive and less biased all in an effort to save more companion animal lives. James, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Hi, good morning. Yes, and good morning to you too. And thank you again. First and foremost, I have to ask you this question. You know, how did you become passionate about cats? (laughs) (laughs) I will be honest with you. Cats have always been passionate about me. (laughs) I've I've always been a dog person. And I actually was walking my dog once. I was probably 10 years old. And out of nowhere, a mama cat attacked us. She must have been guarding her kittens under a car or something. And that cat ran up my arm, up my back, into my head. And I had scratch marks all over the place. And uh, (laughs) I picked up my dog and we just started running. And later, my mom explained that the cat probably had kittens nearby But ever since then, it was almost like I was barked. And since then, cats are incredibly drawn to me. I love animals. I I have always loved animals. My parents, if they wanted to keep me quiet, all they had to do was take me to a zoo or sit me in front of Mutual of Omaha. I'm dating myself here. (laughs) Um, I I love them. Cats are fascinating in ways that dogs are not. And I'm a wildlife photographer as well, so I spend a lot of my time trying to grow up and be more like companion animals, honestly. So, you know, your role in animal welfare sounds like you played a significant role in the HSUS's Pets for Life program, but how did you get there, and then how did you get from there into care? Oh, that's a great question. I think organically, 
is probably the, the best way to describe it. I had honestly no idea animal welfare existed. I come from a very underserved community and really what that means, I think often when people say underserved or poor or impoverished or destitute or whatever that is, I think too often we think of criminality when really we should be thinking about lack of information because that's the predominant obstacle, I think, of ascending communities like that is learning that there is another world outside of this sort of desert. I mean, we talk about food deserts, but it's really, it's really, I grew up in an information desert. And once I left high school as an art major and then went on to college as an art major, then industrial design major, then I worked for a cadre of international design firms doing international projects all, all over the world. I eventually started my own firm in 1999. My first client was the uh, NAACP and we did campaigns with them. And, you know, we had some success with those campaigns. And after that, we had a cadre of non-for-profits, uh, folks that were focused on really removing barriers, many of the same barriers that I grew up with. None of them touched on animal welfare, however. So it was really about anti-smoking cessation, anti-gun violence focused here in Baltimore, foreclosure awareness, really important things that impact people's lives for the better. So we were always proud of the work. But one day out of the blue, I got a phone call from someone representing HSUS asking if we would be interested in being involved in a spay-neuter campaign. And we went in, we were interviewed, you know, normal standard things, showing our portfolio, discussing, you know, the problem. At that time, it was the Gulf of Mexico. There were more animals being euthanized in Louisiana and Mississippi than any two states in the country. So we started the Gulf campaign down there, and the Gulf campaign sort of matured into Pets for Life. But Really, once I got into animal welfare, it was like a light bulb had gone off. My whole life being, I, I don't know how to, as, as much curious and in love with animals at the same time. Here I am also incredibly fascinated by the process of art and design and mass communications. And we get this phone call from, you know, one of the largest animal welfare organizations in the world. And from there, it was a dream come true. It was literally like my two passions, mass comms and design, met with animals. And we really never looked back from there. In doing so, the golf campaign was a major success, as was Pets for Life. We actually initiated that program, designed the toolkit. I personally wrote probably 70% of the toolkit as it stands today. And so very involved with it. I think coming from, again, that resource desert, that information desert that I had come from personally, I think my insight into what was needed for Pets for Life was, was crucial. And that was matched with some of the insights from the sort of expert staff at HSUS about what was going on inside of animal welfare. So you're talking about people like Heather Camisa, uh, Stephanie Shane, Kenny Lamberti, these people have spent so much time in the field understanding the nature of what shelters needed, 
And whereas I spent so much of my time understanding mass comms in that process. And so when we put our heads together, Pets for Life was, a, I think, a natural result of these sort of brilliant minds really thinking about what were the next steps. Unfortunately, Pets for Life is just not enough. Pets for Life is a service-oriented program which essentially delivers spay and neuter, which is essential, but it's just not enough. And so as we progress in the animal welfare field, we were constantly asking our animal welfare clients, look, we really need to amplify the involvement of people of color in helping to solve the problem. And some clients, I think, were responsive to that, but so few were. But my point is that we were generally encouraging our clients to be a little bit more inclusive than what they would have normally been. So a lot of the work that we produced almost always had someone of color being amplified within uh, the document, within a design document. And right, I think it was the last, really, this was just before COVID, we did a program for Maddie's called Breaking Bias, where we essentially went around the country and we interviewed all of these amazing people, dog owners, cat owners, it didn't matter. But the point was we really wanted to interview a diverse group of people, senior citizens, people without homes, uh, people with disabilities, Latino people, African-American people, people that we were noticing too often might be discouraged from adopting or being turned down from adopting. And we really wanted to highlight animal welfare, sort of this crop of incredible people that I think animal welfare was marginalizing in one way or another. Maddie's was excited about it. The Humane Society was excited about it. So we put on this thing called Breaking Bias. It was a lot of video interviews and it caught the attention of Springpoint Live of Riley. And right before George Floyd was killed, Chaitana from Springpoint approached me and said, hey, you know, you guys are really the only group in animal welfare who are sort of constantly trying to create a diverse a conversation around diversity and inclusion through your work. How would you like to start an organization that we would fund? Springpoint would start the funding for and you guys would be autonomous. And the design of this non for profit would be focused on bringing more inclusivity to the field. And so. I actually didn't come up with the idea. I was doing the work that we have been doing for years for animal welfare, always being mindful that diverse audiences always bring, I think, extra things to the table, things that people often don't think about. But it was Springpoint Life O'Reilly that actually took the initiative and said, what if you guys did this? And we said, okay. And six or seven weeks later, uh, unfortunately, George Floyd was killed and I think light bulbs went off around the industry and it just so happened that care had already been created and we had answers to a lot of the questions. So it was a, a perfect storm, unfortunately, buoyed by the unfortunate death of George Floyd. What a journey. That's amazing. What a journey. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, to take a deep breath and go, whoo, wow, it, it's incredible. And I think that you touched upon a lot of points in there that are really important in looking at the animal welfare space. And I think you may have seen this, which is 
there's a lot of inward energy in animal welfare. So we're looking in at our facilities. What are we providing internally rather than looking externally at our communities and seeing what can we do to provide support to our community members as well as to the animals that they care for. And tell me if I'm wrong, if I misinterpreted that sort of in your conversation there. No, not at all. I think I should say when I say this goes beyond the problems that we have in this country surrounding race and ethnicity, those are problems. And and when I say go beyond those, it's not as though those things are small. Those things are enormous problems that I think really delay the growth, personal growth and national growth of the country. Because if we believe in the false narratives that come with being a person of color, we are missing out on incredible people. I know what my contribution is to this field, and I know that I came to it somewhat organically. What I really know is that I'm not the only one. There are many, many brilliant people of color that I think find themselves in suppressed situations. And I think we need to do a lot more about erasing our sort of false narratives about people. And that doesn't just include people of color. That includes seniors. It includes people with disability. It includes people that may not have traditional homes. You know, when I think you're a part of a marginalized group, your ear gets sensitized and your eye gets sensitized to seeing more in people because you recognize that you yourself end up walking around with false narratives wrapped around you. For instance, I'm 6'3", 220 some odd pounds. I was born with a very athletic physique. So most people think I'm a football player, a boxer, and I've literally never played any kind of organized sport, never in my life. I've been an artist my entire life. I know way more about Rembrandt than I do about basketball. But no one, no one thinks I'm an artist. No one thinks that I'm passionate about colors and compositions. And and I'm not just passionate about it. I'm actually gifted. I'm multi-award winning inside of this field. But when people look at me, they don't see that. And so it's also gifted me with the ability to not see people for what their sort of cover of the book appearances. So when I see a senior, I don't necessarily think that person is fragile. When I see someone that is without a home, I don't necessarily think, oh, that person wouldn't be a, a, a good pet companion. So I think we need to do a better job of turning outward and not ignoring marginalized people because I think we have a very special story to tell. And it's not a story of receiving gifts. It's not a story of receiving donations. It's a story of learning different ways of survival that we can bring to almost any industry and also help them survive and be a little bit more, I think, sensitive to the things that they're doing that may not, you know, sensitive to problems that they may not have solved that marginalized people may very well be that audience to help solve those problems. So it really is to me about bringing everyone to the table, middle class, wealthy, marginalized. Everyone should be at the table because we all have uh, proximity to pets. Say goodbye to scooping. Say hello to a better litter box. 
Introducing Kitty Sift, the eco-friendly, waterproof litter box made of recycled cardboard. Just lift, sift, and reuse. See it on Amazon or go to kittysift.com and use coupon code PODCAST for 15% off. By now, you know how powerful the Dubert software platform is, facilitating everything from transport to fostering with just a few clicks. But did you know that the team at Dubert also provides consulting and custom software development for your organization's needs? The team at Dubert has extensive experience in website design, SEO strategies, mobile application development, and even advanced capabilities involving integration to social media and text messaging. Big or small, the team at Dubert can do it all. And because Dubert operates as a social enterprise, all of the revenue from their consulting services goes back into developing even more innovative and life-saving solutions for animal rescues around the world. So if you are planning to increase your digital presence online through a new website or some SEO strategies, or if your organization is looking for an experienced web development team to support your operations, look no further than the team at Dubert. Reach out to Chris today at chris at dubert.com and he'd be glad to discuss what you're trying to accomplish and how they can help. Community Cats Podcast is excited to announce a brand new event this year, the Online United Spay Alliance Conference. United Spay Alliance, or USA, is a nonprofit nationwide source for affordable, accessible, and timely spay neuter services, education, and policy. Together with USA, we will be bringing you amazing content on spay neuter work starting on Friday, February 26th, and running through Sunday, February 28th, 2021. Conference topics include recruiting veterinarians and meeting rural needs, a COVID-19 panel, how to start a spay-neuter clinic, including explanations of the various clinic models, transport models, how to make spay-neuter a priority in your community, grant-making for spay-neuter, how to work with animal control and your board of health, and many, many more. To see the full list of topics and speakers and to learn how you can register, visit communitycatspodcast.com. We're excited about this new offering and we hope you will be too. So one of the things that I have done over the years in several different communities is, you know, created community-based organizations because I feel like it's a lot more than just financial resources, you know, you come in, you bring your mobile spay-neuter clinic, you do a vaccination day, you do a spay-neuter day, and then you leave. I feel there's a lot more support that the community needs on a day-to-day basis and neighbor-to-neighbor basis in in helping the cats. And in my world, it's a focus on cats, but I do include dogs in some of my programs. So I, I try to cross that bridge too, but I focus on the cats, the outdoor cats, as well as the owned cats in the communities. But I don't feel like as a maybe a more regional organization, an outside organization coming in, I don't feel like I should be the lead person. I think that it should be uh, folks from the community, whether it's a committee-based organization or whether it's partnering with social service organizations or local churches. You know, I feel that's where the organic growth falls and where the sustainability falls. Is that sort of where you are are leaning and and it covers lots of topics and they're topics much bigger than we can cover in a 25 minute conversation today. But do you feel that that's a good start for helping us in all of our communities with regards to animals and inclusion and access to services? Absolutely. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. Essentially, there is no extracting animals from people. Uh, for thousands of years, we 
we have found companion animals and companion animals have, have found us. Unlike myself, um, cats find me <laughs> somehow. And, <laughs> and that's okay. I, I think what you're describing is what we are planning for. We're planning for what we're calling care centers, which are essentially community-focused centers where we want to offer animal welfare to, first, marginalized and distressed communities. We want to offer animal welfare as workforce development, right? So imagine a a place like Baltimore. There are lots of distressed communities like Baltimore. We would like to go to these communities, not unlike we did with Pet for Life, do outreach, find those people that are already passionate about animal welfare, their version of animal welfare, and come to them and say, by the way, how would you like to have some help setting up your own 501c3, right? We would, as CARE, we would provide legal assistance helping you set up. We would help you with some initial funding, some technical support, but then you're off on your own. And that small organization would be responsible for seven or eight square blocks where those employed would get to know their neighbor's animals intimately. So that person would also be a buffer between the community and animal control, would be a liaison between the community and the nearest clinic or shelter or veterinary services, hopefully low-cost veterinary services. So we believe that Animal welfare is very 30,000 feet up. Shelters are, I would say, 15,000 feet up, but almost nothing is at ground level. And so there is no real gray area between a family in distress that doesn't understand what the next steps are with their animal. And often that results from that ground zero uh, issue going straight up to 15,000 feet as opposed to someone at a 10-foot level, someone at a ground level, really working with families intimately, not unlike community cat programs, but these would be community members. So that's what we've been talking about and trying to drive funding around is really starting care centers where there might be, in a city like Baltimore, it might be 10, somewhere like Hamden, New Jersey, there may be 10 or 12. And so... A care center in Camden, New Jersey, wouldn't look the same as a care center in Los Angeles or in a Native American community. The idea is that the community would own the care center and that the care center would essentially provide jobs as well. I think there is an enormous amount of money in animal welfare, in animal welfare, billions of dollars. I think we need to start spending some of that money and resources on employing people in smaller communities that actually assist their their neighbors so that we can sort of stop the stem of animals flowing into shelters in the first place. 
I see the sort of neighborhood association model coming out of this yes. in, in this conversation. And so obviously there's a lot of overlayering of other social services. And I've gotten involved in doing a lot with regards to pet food distribution around the state of Massachusetts into human food pantries that may not have accepted pet food in the past. And now they're very grateful for pet food because they're seeing the stresses of, of what's been going on with the unemployment rate and with the coronavirus and, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot lot of multi-layering that goes on, but it's local layering. I, I'm a strong believer of small is beautiful in this kind of case. The, yes. the smaller you can get, the more targeted you can get. Like with community cats, we focused on targeted trap neuter return programs as being very effective in reducing the cat overpopulation situation for, for community cats. And, and I think that being targeted in all those social service layers is going to be tremendously impactful. And, and I believe in this model 100%. I've used components of it in various communities in Massachusetts with great success over the years and continue to work hard to do that also. So, James, I, I really thank you for, for sharing with us today. If folks are interested in finding out more about CARE and the work that you're doing, how would they do that? Uh, they would certainly do that at our website, and that's careawo.org. And absolutely reach out to us there. And James, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? So I just want people to look around them, share information, look look at marginalized communities as assets. Uh, there's so many people that are passionate, like I was as a kid. <laughs> and I, I can tell you that if someone had come to me in my early years and introduced me to animal welfare, I probably would have become a vet. And I, I meet many young people that say that say the same, that they would love to become a vet. And, um, you know, I would say just stop. If you see someone that is from a marginalized group and they're handling a pet or have a pet, stop and have a conversation. Because I think people in animal welfare that have this expertise, we just need to share it. That, that ring cloud is 30,000 feet up. We need to squeeze it um, until everyone on the ground gets wet with all the rich information that we have to share. James, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on again in the future. Thank you so much for having us. I, I wish you the best of luck. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Wow.